0: Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, the South Pole Traverse. It's a warm November morning, and technicians are fueling up a fleet of big yellow tractors, prepping them for the long journey they have ahead of them. This is the South Pole Traverse, or SPOT. They're getting ready to drive from McMurdo Station across more than 1,000 miles of the Antarctic interior to deliver fuel to the South Pole Station. Hooked up to them are large black bladders full of fuel on sleds, and will look like shipping containers on skis. However, it's not cargo in those containers, but it's the team's living space. Corey Hoddle, the manager of Traverse Operations, shows me around.
1: Yeah, we have got the living module, the kitchen module, um, this generator module where the food's stored, um, and then the tool shed. Those are the four main modules that we have. This one, we pull this extra building um, just for that extra beds like I was talking. So let's poke our head in here real quick.
0: We climb up the stairs on the side of one of the containers and enter into what looks like a surprisingly cozy kitchenette, like something you'd see in an RV.
1: So yeah, we start kind on of the kitchen module, that's um, where the majority of where they're going to do their cooking, eating at this table.
0: And they need all this because it's not a short trip.
1: So 25 days um, on average to the pole, then they'll be at pole 7 to 10 days and then come back about 15 to 20.
0: Each year, multiple convoys of tractors haul hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel to the South Pole to keep the station running throughout the nine-month winter when planes can't fly there. Every flight to the South Pole offloads extra fuel for the station to store for winter. But getting as much of the need for winter using just that method took many, many flights. So over the last few years, these traverses have been replacing many of those trips.
2: The planes aren't as efficient as what we can pull.
0: This is Jason Swisher. I talked to him just after he returned from the traverse he was the supervisor of.
2: Uh, one tractor pulls eight loads of, uh, eight plane loads of fuel, so it's more efficient for us to do it. It takes us a lot longer than a plane, but we can get way more than they. We can get a lot more fuel there than they can.
0: The South Pole needs a lot of fuel to keep the electricity running throughout the long winter. Thor Lawson, who is a heavy equipment operator on the same traverse as Jason, gives an idea of
3: just how much. We left town with uh, roughly 160,000 gallons, and we delivered 118,000 gallons. And then, so there is three different trips that make it, so roughly around 300,000 gallons of fuel gets delivered between the three traverses. That's a huge
0: chunk of what South Pole needs to get it through the winter. Driving all that is a big effort, and the team
3: has to bring with them everything they're going to need for the weeks that they're out in the field. Out of the eight tractors, six of them are pulling fuel, and two of them are pulling the modules. Uh, On spot two, the crew is on this year. One tractor is pulling uh, the kitchen module, which also has bunks in it. And then behind that is a generated module. And then behind that is what we call faulty towers. It's a wooden box the carpenters here built for us. It um, has bunks in it also.
0: And I wanted to know, what's it like living out of these modules for weeks on end?
2: It's between RVing with eight of your non-closest friends and living on a boat. Uh, some of the stuff in our modules is from a boat, and some of it's from an RV. So they use a little bit of both to put the module together, and it works well. Um, but yeah, it's like living on a boat.
0: It's not just the stuff in the modules that makes the trip feel like ships crossing a vast frozen ocean, but also the close quarters
3: that the crew keeps with each other. Anyone that spent a lot of time on a boat, you know, not just a week in between ports, but like three, four weeks in between ports, uh, that's kind of where we are. We're stuck with each other in a small area. We have all this land around us, but we can't really go explore too much here. Stuck within those, you know, 20, 30 yards around the modules. Except instead of boats, the operators are driving massive yellow tractors. Uh, We're driving uh, Cat Challenger tractors, agricultural tractors, uh, MT-865s mainly. And, uh, yeah, we're going anywhere from 5 to 10 miles an hour and, yeah, creeping along. They've been modified to
0: work in the frigid polar plateau, which can be more than a mile above sea level.
3: They are
2: agricultural tractors that a farmer would use back stateside. Uh, Caterpillar has modified them for our use. Um, They've sealed up the engine compartment and made it so the tractor basically runs at normal temperatures, and it doesn't realize that it's in negative 20. And the tractor a lot of farming tractors aren't made to run at nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet above sea level. Most people don't farm that high. So we have problems with power, and our tractors tend to throw us all these codes. And it's all elevation-related. They're not meant to be up that high, but they're fine. Uh, they just think that there's something wrong.
0: And though it's not exactly what they were designed for,
3: the SPOT team puts lots of miles on these tractors. So as the GPS from waypoint to waypoint, it's 1,035 miles from the junction out by the airfield to the South Pole Station.
0: Driving over vast ice sheets that are constantly flowing presents a unique problem for navigation. GPS can tell you exactly where on the Earth's surface you are, but if it's the surface itself that's moving, that may not always be the most important thing to know. know. Sometimes it's just best to go with the flow,
3: so to speak. So we go by waypoints and GPS, however those are moving every day, so actually our most reliable technological piece of navigation is a flag every quarter mile, if it's still there. If it hasn't been buried, ran over, blown away, yeah.
2: We always try to stick with the flags because we know that's safe. We GPR the flag line, but we don't know what else is out there.
0: The big concern is crevasses, huge, gaping holes rendered virtually invisible by a thin snow covering. If a heavy tractor drives over such a snow bridge, it can collapse, and the tractor and driver can plummet hundreds of feet. The spot traverses use ground-penetrating radar, the GPR that Jason mentioned, to look for new cracks in the ice below the flagged route.
2: Um, It's flagged every couple years by someone on a snowmobile. Uh, Their job is to ride a snowmobile back from Pole all the way to McMurdo and we bring thousands of flags with us uh so they reflag the route and try to fix some portions because the ice is always moving so we have 100 mile stretches and they're not straight by any means the ice is constantly moving so we make a route from last year's um, turns and waypoints but from now until the following year the ice moves anywhere from a couple hundred feet to a quarter of a mile so if I use last year's GPS coordinates, I'll be a quarter mile off of where the road actually is. So it's a combination of flags and GPS.
0: Now, safety is a central concern, especially when going through regions that are prone to crevassing.
3: And in those areas when we're crossing them, uh, we put our harnesses on um, in our tractors while we're crossing them, just as a safety precaution. If something were to happen, um, that's not something you have to worry about at that time.
0: And one of the most dangerous areas is only a little ways away from McMurdo Station. It's called the McMurdo
3: Shear Zone. 30 miles from town is the Shear Zone, which is the area where the McMurdo Ice Shelf is going one way and the Ross Ice Shelf is going a different way. And in the three-mile section, there's 50-odd crevasses that uh, get mitigated every year. GPR, uh, ground-penetrating radar. Um, if ones have opened up big enough, they get, the snow bridge gets blown out, dynamite, and we fill them in from the bottom with snow. And once that's taken care of, their route takes them through a range of different terrains. From there, we're on the Ross Ice Shelf for 600 miles. Uh, The Ross Ice Shelf, for the most part, is pretty
2: smooth. Uh, it's, there's not much to it. Around McMurdo, it's, in the summertime, it's warm, and the sun here is really strong, so... We're basically sitting in a greenhouse all day.
3: Sun's out, or cabs are glass all around, you're cooking in your cab, uh, down to your shorts, and door open, window open. Within the first couple days, you leave sight of land. Uh, Erebus disappears, Minna Bluff disappears, and it's three, four hundred miles before you see anything other than flat ice shelf.
2: Uh, When we get to the glacier, uh, this mountain range. We're only three miles away from the mountains, so it looks really close, but it's still three miles away. And the Leverett
3: Glacier is where we climb up onto the polar plateau. Um, And it takes us a whole day to make that, because we have to uh, tandem pull the loads up the glacier. Tractors aren't powerful enough to pull loads up the hill. Uh, And then once you're up on the polar plateau, uh, it's flat white again. Though the smooth white
0: horizon might look like what they just left on the Ross Ice Shelf, it's like they've entered a whole new world after leaving the Leverett Glacier.
2: Uh, Up on the plateau, it's always really cold and windy, and uh, it gets really rough because of the wind. So we have to slow down, and that's usually where we have all of our issues and breakdowns is on the plateau the wind, the constant wind. There's very few days up there where there is no wind, and the wind carves these drifts that are like concrete. And for us to drive over them, it's really rough. And just the constant driving over these drifts that are the size of cars uh, takes a toll on people and equipment.
3: And then about, ooh. 50 miles or so from the Leverett. We run into an uh, area we like to call Sestrugi National Park. Uh, it's definitely an area where
2: you want your seatbelt on. Uh, it's it's rough. It's like the roughest dirt road you've driven your vehicle down uh, all day. It never ends. just one drift after another, and uh, you pretty much... We joke around that when you start in the morning, you just take everything that you brought in your tractor and put it on the floor because it's going to end up on the floor anyways because everything just falls, goes flying in the cab.
3: And then, strangely enough, right after that area, we go into the swamp. So we go from the area where it gets a lot of wind, a lot of shearing action that builds the Sestrugi to a dead zone of wind that's around the South Pole. Uh, and without the wind, the snow that does blow in there, fall there, just stays light and fluffy, and, uh, you go from plowing concrete to getting stuck in soft snow.
2: It's a swamp, is our version of a swamp, and there's just no bottom to it. If you get stuck, you just spin out until, I mean, there's no bottom, so you just get stuck. We use the same route year after year. So over the years, we've been able to compact a base to our road. So you, you have to concentrate on staying on the road. Um, you drive off the road, you can still go, but it you notice it right away that you've oh, gone too
3: far. You need to get back on the road. And then, yeah, then you're at uh, pole turn, and you're turning into the South Pole Station. It's an exciting time. The long journey is almost at an end. Well, you can see it when you're about 20 miles out and it still takes you another three, four hours to get there. So, um, so every
2: year it's a little different. They always have us come in in a little different way, whatever makes sense to them. So it's, it's kind of a little stressful because we've been out by ourselves and there's nothing to hit. But once we get to pole, there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's people, people want to see us coming in. So it, it gets stressful, but, uh, everyone's always excited to get there. The first thing on everyone's mind is going to take a shower. Uh, we have a shower, but it's nice to just not have to shovel the snow first.
0: Now back on the tour with Corey Hoddle, he shows me how this works and how the spot team turns the snow and ice they've been driving over into the water they use.
1: So this is our snow melter. Um, it's about 150 gallons. So we usually push a blade of snow up right here so we can just shovel it, you know, chuck it in. Um, and then of course the plumbing goes to the inside. We'll take a look at that. but. This is definitely something we visit every single day. You can take a shower every day as long as you're willing to shovel. Um, And then we got laundry in there as well. So
0: it's kind of amazing how much they're able to squeeze inside just a couple of modules, each about the size of a shipping container. We take another peek inside the tight living quarters.
1: And then the bunk rooms, we've got four per side. There's another one on that side looks just the same. So everybody can spread out pretty nicely. got two to three per bunk room, and then they can throw their stuff, you know, on the top bunk and that kind of stuff. It's pretty nice for as far out in the Quebec country they're going, you know.
0: Once all the supplies are loaded and the vehicles gassed up, their powerful engines rumble to life, and the fleet rolls out, heading due south. That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.